صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Morning, Rob. Good morning, Nasa. How are you? How are you, listeners? I've had a couple of emails and texts. They're excited about talking to us live in person next week for Radiothon, so make sure you call in next week, 3CR for Radiothon. We need your support and donations, so make sure you call in and speak to Rob and I. But today we're speaking to a fantastic Palestinian out of Palestine today, Dr. Leith Hanbali. Leith is a freelance consultant focusing on health policy. He has also worked as a researcher, public health practitioner and doctor, volunteered as a civil society organizer and taught on several global health programs. He earned a master's degree in health policy, planning and financing from the London School of Economics and Political Science and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and a medical degree and a bachelor's degree in global health from University College in London. Welcome, Leith. You're a massive underperformer. Welcome to Palestine <laughs> Remembered. Thank you so much, Nasser. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for having me on the show and uh, for your interest in my work. Leith, we have very Palestinian guests from all over the world and invariably many of them are highly educated like yourself. And one of the things, I don't know that we actually articulate it that often, but a reality of Palestinians in diaspora having been robbed of their lands, their home, their hope uh, in many cases, education is thrust and the, the demand for education is thrust upon us. And we're amongst the most educated people on earth. And certainly, Leith, you, you make us, you really honour us with being on the show. But we say in Arabic, lift our heads. We're so very proud of you. Congratulations, Leith. Martha, that's really, really kind. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, Leith, why don't you tell us a little bit about your Nakba story? Of course. So my family, myself, I am from Nablus, which is about 60, 70 kilometers north of Jerusalem. That means that uh, although like every other Palestinian city, it was a very, uh, it played a very active part in uh, the growing political consciousness uh, around Palestinian identity in particular. You know, there are lots of stories of the uh, old cafes being hubs for that uh, kind of organizing and that political consciousness growing. Nablus was was not one of the places that was colonized in 1948. It came under Jordanian rule. But Nablus was forcefully occupied by Israel uh, in the Nexa, which which we're, uh, we mark the anniversary of this week. So it in 1967, you know, the Israeli tanks rolled into what remained of Palestine, and Nablus was one of those places, and it came under military rule at that point. I um, obviously wasn't there for that, but I was there growing up, um, Israeli military rule as a child in Nablus, you know, still, despite being quite young when it happened, recall very vividly the Second Intifada in particular, when um, Israeli tanks, after kind of having uh, withdrawn to the peripheries of the cities, 
you know, rolled in and did untold damage to to our communities, you know, martyred hundreds of our people and, you know, stationed themselves in our houses and took over buildings. And, and you kind of heard uh, constant shelling and, and, you know, you'd know that you were going to be going on the funeral of another martyr the next morning when that happened. You're from Nablus. And for our listeners that don't know, Nablus is very famous for its soap, but it's also very, very famous for the world's best knefi. Now, uh, yes, listeners, absolutely. You, can't, you can't see late, but he is about one-fifth of the size he should be, having, <laughs> having grown up in Nablus. The most famous it's because I, w- I walk to the furthest Knerfe shop around, so just to, <laughs> to, to burn some of it off. <laughs> you, you've not seen anything like uh, a Nabilsi eating Knerfe from Laksa Knerfe for breakfast, a piece of Knerfe yes. between two pieces of bread, like a roll. Yes. And eating it as a sandwich, about 5,000 calories. <laughs> yeah, you're set for the week then. <laughs> you are set for the week. <laughs> Late- I think I'm going to get some soon, but I'll be disappointed. <laughs> oh, look. <laughs> it's one of those things, you land in Palestine, you do all of the tick box things, but then the very next thing you've got to do is go to Nablus and just uh, eat knefi. Now, Leith, yeah. you, you wrote an article very recently, it was published, and we'll put a link to this article in the podcast, so please go there and see it. It's called Israeli Violence is Central to Palestine's mental health crisis. Now, you talk a lot there about the situation in Gaza, but also around the whole of Palestine with respect to the occupation and what it's doing to Palestinians' mental health. Take us through your article and extend on it, if you will. As you might see, as you may have heard from my bio, my interest is really focused on health. I really value the way in which health can be used as a lens to expose injustice. And so this is really where that came from. And you know, you, you hear over and over again things like a thousand percent of Palestinians have post-traumatic stress disorder and this many are depressed and this many have anxiety. And there are several problems with this. And I try to uh, engage in, in the main ones in the article, which um, inevitably means that it's just a bit of a light touch exercise. But there are two, two big things to really consider here. The first is that we have to be able to, to understand the problem. We have to really get at the root cause of it, right? So when we diagnose in medicine, you know, you want to understand the precise way in which a disease has developed so that you can come up with the best tools to combat that disease and, and heal the person in front of you. Now, you know, public health is, is that, but on a, on a much larger level, it's trying to do that to, um, to communities and, and, and countries at a time. So to understand, for example, the mental health crisis in Palestine, to understand why people exhibit symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, which are things like flashbacks and being very anxious and things like that. Uh, Depression, you know, things like uh, symptoms like lack of hope, you know, not seeing a bright future, being down, not being able to motivate oneself to to do things. Now, these things, when you put them in the context of settler colonialism, are not symptoms of disease, right? Settler colonialism very clearly aims to subjugate people. It aims to make them hopeless. It aims to take away everything that people value in order to drive them off of their land and to stop them from resisting this violence, right? That is, that is the core tenet of settler colonialism. So when we talk about these terms like depression and anxiety, all these kind of different symptoms, they're not because of a diseased mind. The Palestinian mind is not diseased. The disease is the colonial violence. And if you take away the colonial violence, a lot of these things would disappear. So that you know, that's the first part of the article, and that's the one of the solutions 
to, you know, making Palestinians more hopeful, making them happier, making them uh, more able to, to engage in planning for the future and things like that. And uh, diagnosing the problem, settler colonialism, leads us to a logical solution, dismantling settler colonialism. And that's one part. The other part to consider is these definitions in and of themselves actually come from a Western perspective, which has been imposed on the rest of the world. So when we think about um, the relationship between a health practitioner and the patient, it's a very individualized relationship. And so invariably, health professionals end up looking at a very narrow set of personal circumstances in order to understand what someone suffers from and then try to heal them on an individual basis. Now, that's how the Western medical establishment has conceptualized health, but that's not the same as what people all over the world want to do, right? So you will know, Nasser, and, and Robert, if you've interacted with a lot of Palestinians, as I'm sure you've done, you know that you know our community is very important to us. You know, we experience things um, as a family, as a neighborhood, as a community, and that is both in happiness and in sadness, right? We experience these things together, and we celebrate each other's successes, and we console each other and ourselves. Take, for example, the assassination of Shirin Abu Aqleh a few weeks ago. Every time a Palestinian would speak to another Palestinian for about a week, they would offer the other person their condolences while offering themselves condolences at the same time because it shook an entire nation all over the world, all 10, 11 million of us. So we feel that on a community level, right? We feel both the sadness and, and, the, and the happiness on a community level. And therefore, that really individualized relationship between a doctor and a patient, between a nurse and a patient, is, is not really the way that if we were to have the freedom to organize our health services by ourselves, that's not the way that we would do it. And that's the, the, you know, the same thing goes for a lot of other indigenous people. And I um, you know, wouldn't want to kind of speak for any of them. But when, when you exchange these ideas with others from a lot of other communities, they say the same thing. And we've arrived at this point where we just, you know, impose the same Western traditions of medicine all over the world because of colonialism as well, right? So the West colonizing the entire world, telling people exactly how they should live their lives, and then telling them that they're doing it all wrong while continuing to impose the same tools uh, to fix the problems that the West created. So that is, although, you know, Western countries do not directly colonize a lot of the world anymore, there's persisting what we call coloniality, the imposition of these Western ideas on the rest of the world without due consideration for what the people that you're imposing these things on actually want. Interestingly, and you spoke about in your article, you know, whether it's Muhammad in the Gaza Strip following an interview with Medicine Sans Frontier, who said his mind is con continually preoccupied with thoughts about war. Adel, who says, we live in a state of constant fear. Everything feels stressed for himself and his brothers, his children, his friends. The World Bank did a survey, 70% of Gazans and 57% of West Bank residents reported symptoms consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder. When we're talking about that Western construct of post-traumatic stress disorder, you speak to it very clearly. While it's the most commonly diagnosed mental health condition in Palestine, it's inaccurate because this is a Western colonial construct which assumes the event has stopped. When in reality, as you said, you know, the using health to expose injustice, what we've got here is a mental health challenge that is because of settler colonialism. There is no opportunity for a post. It's ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's another layer to it. So you, you're 100% right. And it's not 
post it is you know this constant trauma so that immediately goes out the window but there's another layer to this which is that and i couldn't fit this into the article but post-traumatic stress disorder actually came out of a definition of a disease that you know soldiers returning from war were suffering from so they would go and like you know do all sorts of atrocities all over the world to brown and black bodies and then they would go home and be preoccupied while in complete safety by the horrors that they witnessed, and you couldn't see my air quotes there, but there were air quotes there because they were the ones inflicting them, right? So they were inflicting that violence and then they would go back and while completely safe, have, you know, fears and stuff. And so that is, you know, post-traumatic disorder was also a product of imperialism and colonialism because they were sending these young people out to do their bidding, to be violent towards people, to subjugate people. And then those people that were committing that violence were then suffering all of these, these horrible ailments when they came back. But there's a really kind of important part of this, which is that they had returned to safety and then they were suffering these symptoms. So, you know, in the Gaza Strip, one of the most densely populated places on earth where we've had, you know, a teenager has suffered through four wars, four assaults, four brutal massacres, during their lifetimes, they're obviously going to be preoccupied by thoughts of war because they've seen so much of it and they don't know when the next one will take place. So we go back to the fact that that's not a sign of a diseased mind. That's just a natural reaction to the to the reality that that person is living. I think people need to also realise that the colonisation, it's calculated. I mean, the Israeli soldiers go through the villages at you know between 2 and 3 a.m in the morning because they want the children to feel unsafe they could go through any time during the day but they tend to go at night they tend to beat the parents in front of the kids and it's calculated because they want to do this to the entire population beginning from a child all the way up to the elderly that's correct yes. isn't it of course it's 100 percent correct and that's very accurate and it is clear from the testimonies of palestinians that that's what happens but it's also by the admission of the very people who commit that violence that that's what they try to do and it's the same when when people try to and it's you know that's part of that attempt to subjugate you know the checkpoints the wall the incarceration the house demolitions of anyone who dares to resist the months and months that people spend in in jail for, for throwing a stone like all of these things obviously you know some of these things have have more than one aim such as the wall which also you know takes over a lot of farmland of, of palestinians and, and cuts people off from from their families and from their land but it definitely has a primary purpose of subjugation as well so the entire apparatus of the zionist occupation inevitably creates these situations there's, there's not a disease of the mind it's settler colonialism the complete lack of safety feelings of comfort hope for the future that are creating this mental health crisis. How do you treat a Palestinian? This is a, a very question, and there are some easy kind of broad answers, but then there are more difficult kind of intricacies to, to try to engage with. So you know, we cannot solve this problem without undoing, dismantling, breaking down, whatever you want to call it, settler colonialism and other colonial structures such as coloniality. You cannot solve this problem without ending the violence. And that has to be the centre of anything that we try to do to address this. And settler colonialism ends by promoting the resistance of the people who are living underneath it, by promoting cross-solidarity between communities that recognize that injustice, and, and promoting kind of, you know, the resilience and, and resistance of uh, people under occupation. So that has to be the same, like, right? And, but then there's obviously more immediate things that we 
can try to do. And this is why I talk near the end of the article about trying to reframe services focused on mental health, but health in general in Palestine, to frameworks that are context appropriate, that are born out of local solutions, traditions, and which are really owned by people who they intend to serve. So when, for example, even a even the vast majority of Palestinian providers will just go for the westernized model of very individual care. And that's because that's where the funding is. So, so they need the funding in order to uh, survive frameworks because that's what the Western donors impose. But what we need to do instead is, is create these spaces where people are offered the opportunity and granted the tools to organize and plan and articulate exactly what it is that they want. Because let's take, for example, the the tradition of somud. Somud means steadfastness. The way in which that is translated is essentially community solidarity, community support in order to build resilience to the various forms of colonial violence. And that is what empowers communities to stay on the land, to cope with the violence, to, you know, come out of prison and reintegrate into uh, normal everyday life. So that, for example, would be a concept that that should be supported. And there are Palestinian organizations that, that try to practice this, but, you know, that's not what donors want to fund and that's not what people want to pay attention to but this does to you know this deals with 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 both levels of colonial violence and mental health uh, in Palestine the settler colonialism because it deals directly with the effects of it but also coloniality because it promotes a you know it promotes a, a local solution that flies in the face of the western imposed uh, paradigms so that would be you know one thing but what we see instead is Actually, there's a repression of the uh, organizations that try to come up with local solutions. So let's take, for example, back in, I think it was October, when the Israeli military issued an order outlawing six Palestinian civil society organizations and and, and condemning them as as terrorist organizations. Now, we've seen very soft words being spoken by previous funders, including the European Union of these organizations. But essentially, Israel's getting away with it. These organizations are suffering. Their members are being you know, prohibited from traveling. Their work is being repressed. And there isn't really proper assistance, even from the donors of these organizations, that very explicitly said that there's no credibility to Israel's claims uh, that these are terrorist organizations. And there's another organization, actually, that was targeted uh, several months before these organizations, the six, which became became relatively famous, the Health Work Committee, for example. And that, you know, that is an organization that was trying to come up with local solutions and was founded back in the 70s in order to come up with local solutions, which basically centered an anti-colonial narrative to health services. They basically said the colonial services will not serve the health needs of our people. We need to take matters into our own hands, set up these services. And here, and you know, over time, they've just been targeted through various means. So the introduction of the Palestinian Authority in, in the 90s dealt a massive blow because essentially all of the funding that was coming into the uh, into Palestine, into civil society organizations, was diverted to the 
neo-colonial, neoliberal tool of colonial oppression, the Palestinian Authority, decimating these huge networks of community uh, support. And so what we see by essentially every, you know, every powerful actor in this space is they choose the way in which they want to be complicit and they pick, you know, they pick their favorite one and they practice it. But if, you know, if anyone wants to express solidarity, it's by promoting local solutions. It's by putting power in the hands of Palestinians on the ground who are doing that anti-colonial work. Here, here, brilliantly said Laith. Laith, I'd be interested in your thoughts on intergenerational trauma, how Nakba survivors are passing it down through their families. So the idea of intergenerational trauma is is real. I often go back to kind of two ideas when I think about it. One, there's no healing without the trauma healing. And the way in which you know colonial violence works is that it rips people from their homes and that rips them of um, uh, you know out of their communities, out of their land, which means that it it has material impact, right? So it actually affects your ability to, um, you know, integrate into society because you're always actually kind of being, um, uh, you're being marginalized because, for example, you might have refugee status or you might have, you know, this this hope of return. And, and that, you know, constant uncertainty, um, you know, has material impact. The fact that people had resources stolen from them has material impact, you know, it affects people's um, development, their ability to fulfill their needs and desires. So there's, you know, there's that impact, like that effect, even before you think about the psychological impact, which are obviously uh, just as just as real and just as visceral. And then the, the, the main problem here is that that trauma is not being resolved. That trauma is not being healed. No reparations have been paid. Uh, we haven't been allowed to return to our homes. Um, you know, a lot of Palestinians aren't even able to to visit. Um, if if they do visit, particularly if they are from the Nakba generation, then they might stand in front of a house that was stolen from their father or grandfather, and you know, parents and grandparents, and they just feel helpless because there's a settler sitting inside of her to you know, could legitimately shoot you and get away with it. So that trauma needs to be resolved in order to actually start healing, right? That's that's really important. And there's another thing that's a bit more hopeful that I just kind of want to introduce here as well, which is that although that intergenerational trauma is very painful and horrible and a sign that, um, you know, the injustice is, is continuing, the Nakba is ongoing. It is also why Palestinian liberation is inevitable because, you know, we may have been powerless to stop it 75 years ago, but we're not going to stay powerless forever. And so the persistence of that trauma demands a solution. And so when we do develop the tools, when we do gain the power to dismantle that violence, then we will, because we have skin in the game. We we are. We, it means something personally to us to to resolve it. And that's you know, it, it's 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 um, horrible that that needs that trauma needs to be passed down in order for for justice to be served. But at least it will be. 
There'll always be scars, though, unfortunately. I mean, that's part of trauma and, you know, mental health. There's always the scars there. And, uh, you know, you've, I find it amazing the, the steadfastness of the Palestinians that do hold on to hope because looking from the outside, there doesn't seem to be a lot. But I remember talking to some young kids when I was there saying, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And a few of them, you know, I want to be a doctor, I want to be this. But then they'd end up with, you know, why would I bother? There's no hope for me to do anything. There's no jobs. There's none of this. And it was just, you know, very, very sad. But the, um, they're very powerful people and they will win and they will get what's mm. deserving justice. to them. Yeah, justice, justice will be absolutely. restored. At absolutely. Some Interesting that you say that, Leith. Again, we're speaking to Dr. Leith Hanbali. The connection of an Indigenous people to their land is unbreakable. And this is, you know, one of the, one of the core tenets. And unlike, let's call it, and I hate to say this, effective settler colonialism, and I'm saying it's effective in air quotes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, because of what white settler movements were able to do in Turtle Island, in North America, New Zealand, and here in Australia. In Palestine, they failed. Settler colonialism works when you all but exterminate, you know, ideally exterminate all of the Indigenous people and replace them with the settler. We now represent 51 plus percent of historic Palestine's population. And as Beth Selim and Yeshdin, Human Rights Watch and now Amnesty International have said, we're living in apartheid. You're living there, Leith. Tell us a little bit about apartheid for you, how you've experienced it. The first thing, because it's hot today, the first thing that comes to mind is the number of times in the summer that water just runs out. Whereas an Israeli settler, you know, living on, for example, the village of Rujib's land or, you know, on the lands of, um, of the village of Beta, just a few kilometers um, uh, east of here, uh, enjoys four times as much water as we do, for example. Uh, I might have to go on a work trip to Bethlehem next week, um, a settler who lives really close to where I do. Uh, would be able to drive there through kind of huge, um, you know, well-maintained bypass roads um, and get there probably in about an hour and 15-ish. I'd be very lucky if it took me two hours. Um, So uh, similar story with electricity, similar story with access to land, and we haven't even started on, you know, what would ha- what actually happens in the courts. So, so you're talking about complete segregation with regards to basic infrastructure, with regards to basic services. Um, you know, the same pattern is repeated in health services. If I were to get sick and in education, you've got, you know, the, these new laws coming in where the Israeli military controls the number of academics and students that come from abroad to study or teach in Palestinian universities. When a staff member comes to a Palestinian university from uh, the outside, um, they are not allowed to spend more than one term there. And then they would have to go away for nine months and then come back nine months later. And they're not allowed to serve you know, a university for six months straight. That is the new, that is the new rule about um, academics coming from the outside. So you've got this kind of complete control. Robert is is rightfully outraged. Um, I I guess you haven't heard about that (laughs) until now. It's just so unbelievable that people don't believe it. It's so outrageous. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
So, so you've got, you know, you've got these things and, and we're just talking about everyday life. We haven't talked about the fact that, um, you know, let's say I, I wouldn't do this because I don't want to associate with any settlers, but let's say a settler and I co-conspired in a crime and carried it, carried it out. I would be charged in a, and, and trialed in a, in a military court with a conviction rate of 99 point something percent, uh, whereas the settler would go to Israeli civilian court. You know, the, there's a massive kind of hoo-ha going on at the moment about the extension of emergency um, powers to grant, um, essentially to extend Israeli laws to settlers in the West Bank. Um, and, you know, that, that gets renewed every every five years. And it, I mean, there's a lot of kind of fuss being made about it, but it will pass. Everyone's made it clear that it will pass. Uh, but essentially, they are they are Israeli citizens living um, on what the international community even considers to be Palestinian land. And it's just an extension of um, colonialism that started in 1948 and was expanded in 1967 and continues to expand and has continued to expand everyday sense as well. So, so that's that's the reality of, of apartheid uh, on the ground. It's a, it's a completely segregated um, system um, where Israeli settlers live one life and Palestinians live a completely different life. Just on that Israeli settler, illegal settler, you know, he wouldn't go to court probably, would he? The chances of him well, getting charged are very slim anyway. Mm. Mm. Yeah, 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 it depends what the crime was, Rob. I think if they, were, but, yeah. if they ran over a Palestinian, they'd find a way to convict Laith, but they'd let the settler go. Cool. Right. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Laith, uh, we've run out of time. Thanks so very much for joining us, Dr. Laith Hundley. Now, make sure you go to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and click on that article. You'll, you'll be very impressed with Laith's writing. We'll put a couple of other pieces in there as well. Thanks so much for joining us, Laith. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much to, the, to your listeners as well. Thank you. We'll do it again. And Rob, I look forward to seeing you in the studio next week and make sure you call in and speak to Rob and I for Radiothon 3CR. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast and remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.